guys. Uh, so we're back again. Uh, we had a podcast last week on masculinity and gun violence. Um, last week we talked mostly about the problem of masculinity and kind of all of the stuff that is around it and um, kind of gotten into like why we need to have this conversation about gender in the first place. So um, I'm back again with David McDonald. Hello. <laughs> and uh, today we're um, going to talk about like possible solutions and um, ways that we can actually, you know, fight the problem with um, gender and the issues that surround it. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much it. I think today I would really like to talk to you. Last week we kind of talked to you as like a father, but um, <laughs> this week I kind of like to talk to you as the husband of a teacher. Okay. <laughs> because a lot of the ways that boys develop their gender is in the school mm -hmm. and as someone who is closely related to someone who um, is in the school system, mm -hmm. um, I think that perspective would be helpful. Or at least you would probably understand a little bit more uh, what is doable yeah, <laughs> in my, the school system. My wife that. probably understands it even better than I do, but I'm <laughs> so, here. So, so um, today we're looking at three different articles than last week. Um, they're... Um, the first one is called Adolescent Masculinity, Homophobia, and Violence, and then we're going to move on to an article about um, gendering violence in school shootings in Finland, because that makes me angry, but we'll, we'll get into that. And then we'll end with um, an article from the United Nations on um, women, men, and gun violence and options for action on that, so what we can do locally in our own selves... Um, and then also what the nation can do about gun violence. So let's get started. So I think uh, what I'd first like to talk about, I kind of, this kind of goes back to, we were talking about boys developing and um, the ways that on a playground people will tease boys for um, seeming gay or seeming feminine. And one thing that came up in a couple of articles that I read was like this term gay baiting, which I had mm. never heard before. And I think this might have been in some of the things that we read last week. Uh, but this idea that like, well, it did come up last week, mm -hmm. but it, they didn't have this term gay baiting. Yeah. Um, this idea that uh, if you look a little bit feminine, then you're gay. And for some reason, gay is seen as a negative term. So um, I was just wondering, like what you're <laughs> continuing your thoughts from last week on uh, this this kind of bullying that happens in schools and yeah. what kind of stuff can because bullying is a big issue. I mean, there have been documentaries and lots of studies around bullying, but what kind of things do, do you think we can do, especially around this gay baiting bullying? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think every boy, every man knows what gay baiting is even if they don't know that term because it's happened probably to every boy and every man at some point in their lives um, it's this great big fear that we have of being perceived as gay so it's based in a couple things one is in a toxic masculinity that says that in order to be truly masculine you can't be gay um, and it's based in a homophobia that says that there's something inherently wrong with being gay in the first place. So mm -hmm. that sort of sets the whole thing up. And um, I think that what can be done about that is 
one, normalizing for men and boys behaviors and attitudes that are not considered typically masculine. Um, you know, men who engage in things like some of the things that I enjoy doing, like knitting and baking and cooking a nice meal for our families and stay-at-home dads and, you know, people who are living not typically masculine kinds of mm -hmm. lives and enjoying not typically masculine kinds of things, we need to be celebrating those people. Those are the people we need to be lifting up. I think this, this goes directly to the kinds of examples we use even in the way that we talk. We often talk when we're talking about family, we talk about mom and dad and two kids and mm -hmm. a dog and a cat. And that's not always everyone's typical family. Mm -hmm. A typical family for some person might be a dad and a dad and one kid or three kids or seven kids or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and they might not all be related by birth. They might, yeah. some of them, be adopted or mm -hmm. foster kids. And so the examples that teachers and administrators use in schools can be extremely important. I think it's true of preachers as well. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I try to do as much as possible is to try to mix up the families that I use, the mm -hmm. imaginary families that I use as examples in sermons. So instead of always talking about uh, you know, little Johnny who comes home from school and talks to his mom, who happens to be the parent at home, I might talk about, you know, little Jane who comes home from school and talks to her dad, who's mm -hmm. the person who's at home. Mm -hmm. And, or, or maybe talking about, um, you know, Jane who has two moms mm -hmm. who, who both, you know, take care of her and mm -hmm. nurture her or two dads, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's about, a lot of it's about the language that we use in our culture and normalizing those kinds of non-typically non masculine traits. And then also normalizing um, uh, the various kinds of family relationships that exist. Um, and that's a really controversial issue in our culture mm -hmm. because people are just not in some places at the place where they can say it's okay to be gay. Mm -hmm. um, I happen to be one of the people who's at a place where I can say that. Mm -hmm. So it's easier for me. But mm -hmm. for somebody who comes from the deep south where that's not the norm, mm -hmm. it's going to be much, much harder for mm -hmm. them to kind of bring that into their language and into their speech. Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, it's in some places it's actually actively discouraged from being brought into the classroom. And so that kind of fights against mm -hmm. this um, you know, solution that, that I'm proposing, which yeah. is that we need to talk about it in classrooms and in homes. Mm -hmm. And if you're not allowed to do that as a teacher, mm -hmm. what do you do? I think definitely like the idea of, um, having like more than one outlook on mm -hmm. how a family structure can be put out and mm -hmm. also more on more than one outlook on how a boy can act mm -hmm. um, is really important, especially so in this uh, first article about, um, uh, the adolescent masculinity and homophobia and violence. Um, what I thought was really weird, but like mind blowing to me, uh, was a lot of the boys who became violent were like made fun of for being smart. Mm -hmm. Like smart was seen as the thing that was uh, like feminizing for some mm -hmm. reason. And so I think along with like uh, changing the way that we see like family setups or um, uh, the, the way that gender is displayed mm -hmm. in, um, young boys, along with that, we need to, like, define, mm -hmm. um, what is masculinity and what mm -hmm. is, um, 
like, okay. And, like, obviously being smart is okay. Mm-hmm. Like, being smart is great. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to go to college, you need to be smart. If you want to, uh, you know, like, you but need I, to be smart in a lot of things. Yeah. And for some reason, that's a thing that young boys have decided is mm-hmm. not cool. Yeah. But I think it's interesting, too, that for for boys who display a, a typically masculine framework of the world, you know, mm-hmm. who are the sort of jocks, um, it's not good for anybody to be smart because mm-hmm. girls shouldn't be smart either. Like, if you want to yeah. be attractive to boys <laughs> in high school, you don't want to be the smart girl. Because that's intimidating. Um, yeah, yeah. And if you want to be... Um, if you don't want to get beaten up by the jock boys, you also don't want to be the smart boy. Mm-hmm. So there's something that somehow that we've equated masculinity with being dumb hmm. and that that's a trait to be celebrated rather than mm-hmm. something that we should be concerned about yeah. is really kind of an odd thing that's developed in our culture that we no longer, um, we no longer look at people like poets and scientists and authors and teachers as being... The, at the top of our social order, the people who are seen at the top of our social order are people who are strong and tough and, mm-hmm. you know, look at the, the people who, um, who, who run our country, you know, yeah. we, you, you've got to be a man's man, you've mm-hmm. got to have big hands and, <laughs> you know, you've got to be tall and, and there's, but you don't necessarily have to be all that smart and mm-hmm. that's actually seen as something that's dangerous, you know, yeah. how many times was President Obama criticized for being somebody who had an Ivy League legal education. Which is a weird know? thing to criticize yeah. someone. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's something that in most communities, certainly in the one that he came from, that's something that should be celebrated. Yeah. But not in the sort of toxic masculinity that we... So, mm-hmm. so there's something that we need to do to identify what it is that... What's the insecurity mm-hmm. with men who are, who are hyper-masculine, but have lacked the education mm-hmm. that they need to to see that as not being a threat to them. Mm-hmm. Because I think being smart is the one thing that a, that a, a, a dumb, masculine guy sees as being a threat to him. Mm-hmm. Because it's the one thing he can't fight against. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of uh, last week when we were, we were talking <clears throat> about, like, uh, the likelihood of rape amongst, like, men mm-hmm. and how, like, if a man... Or it was a quote from The Mask You Live In where uh, they said, like... I can't remember what the percent was, but so many men said that, like, they would rape if they knew they wouldn't get caught. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you said something about, uh, like, the scripture mm-hmm. around homosexuality mm-hmm. um, supposedly was about, was really about, like, dominating someone that, yeah, in don't. the same way. And so mm-hmm. that's, uh, just like when I heard you talking about it, I kept thinking about it's a, it's not about, like, what the thing is, it's about, like, can someone, or... If the more masculine guy is not the person that's on top, then it's a bad thing. Yeah. Like, then they have to beat it out of the people who are below them, yeah. um, who may be threatening their yeah. position as... And I think I think part of it, you know, we're talking about solutions, but we kind of co- keep going back to the to the causes. And yeah. I think they're they're related because mm-hmm. one of the causes, which it can also be the solution, mm-hmm. is how the media portrays yeah. men. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at, like, movies... TV, commercials, the things that are in the popular culture, men uh, are seen primarily as either, you know, thugs, mm-hmm. 
again, not very smart thugs, Mm -hmm. or they're seen as animals. They're Mm -hmm. often portrayed as like almost Mm dog-like. And and so again, not very smart, Mm -hmm. or they're seen as children. Yeah. Um, and so how many times have you have we seen a commercial where there's this overburdened mom who's got to take care of her whole family, including her husband, because yeah. he's so clueless, he can't do yeah. anything. He okay. can't wash the dishes, uh-huh. he can't do his own laundry, uh-huh. he can't take care of the kids. You know, how many times do we see um, products for babies that have mom and baby? Yeah. And the only time dad comes in is when it's seen as something comical. Yeah. And so we have this whole portrayal of men as being stupid. And so being stupid is tied up in our, our idea of masculinity. Mm-hmm. And yet it's not tied up in our idea of femininity. Yeah. For, for, feminine, for femininity, we actually see women as being smart, put mm-hmm. together, the mm-hmm. ones who can handle everything, the ones who can multitask. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing biologically that's different that, between yeah. men and women that makes women more, mm-hmm. you know, able to do these things than yeah. men. It's the way that we've constructed our culture that's mm-hmm. different. And then what's also interesting about that is even though um, we do in media show men as like the dumber and sometimes like comedic relief I guess Mm -hmm, in like mm -hmm. commercials especially um even so like men are still the people who are in power over women um even if they may be seen as Mm -hmm. not as educated or not as like uh inherently intelligent I guess Mm -hmm. as women which is like a really weird Mm -hmm. standard I yeah mind-blowing yeah Um. when I was in college um, we watched in one of my communication classes a uh, documentary by Margaret Lazarus that was called killing us softly Mm. and it was all about the history of of women in advertising Mm. and the way that um, women were uh, set up as like these precious uh, things made of, of porcelain that couldn't be broken yeah. and had to be kept on a shelf and had to be pretty and those yeah. kind of things and how that was actually detrimental to women's overall you know, uh, advancement in society I think the same thing is true with men mm-hmm. when it comes to the images that we've created of men, particularly in advertising because advertising is all about changing your view of the world. That's the, yeah. whole, the, yeah. the idea is you need this product and we're going to convince you. Mm-hmm. And so all of the messages within that advertising have a powerful effect on us. And I, I just keep coming back to those images of how we have completely shifted mm-hmm. the way we look at men and women. Whereas at one point the man was the protector who took care of this fragile, gentle thing, mm-hmm. this woman... And now the men have become the objects, uh-huh. but they're seen more as an object of like derision or, mm-hmm. you know, somebody who, who's incapable of taking care of themselves mm-hmm. and, or being compassionate or blah, 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 you know, mm-hmm. so. Mm-hmm. And uh, just to kind of bring this back to uh, like the idea of gun violence, um, like that, that weird way that we've in media like changed the culture, mm-hmm. I guess, how do you think that we can you know, fix that. Mm-hmm. Um, this article talks a little bit about, like, um, when when looking at school violence, we mm-hmm. need to not look at, like, uh, the, own, the person themselves and their mental health, but mm-hmm. rather the school culture and the gun culture in the area. And um, it says, we need to focus less on the form of school violence, documenting its, pre- documenting its prevalence and presenting a demographic profile of the shooters and more on the content of the shootings. 
instead of asking psychological questions about family dynamics and composition, we need to focus our attention on local school cultures and hierarchies, peer interactions, normative gender ideologies, and interactions among academics, adolescents, and gender identity. Mm -hmm. So I think that definitely, like, if we're going to make a big change, then there needs to be some media fixes, Mm -hmm. there needs to be some changes in the way that... uh, like what is allowed in school culture and the way that teachers handle when they see this kind of um, this kind of bullying and like the way that they kind of like what you were talking about the way they talk about like families or the way they talk about um, how a boy should behave. Um, I think especially it's weird to think of this in like an elementary school um, background, but like after seeing the mask you live in and the way that like young boys are affected. I think from a young age, we need to be teaching a more, like, diverse Mm -hmm. um, gender performance as compared to, like, a normative gender performance where, like, the boys play in mud and the girls play with dolls. Mm -hmm. So I think that definitely starts with schools, but what do you... Yeah, well, I think school culture, um, it, it's... It seems like it would be an easy target to hit, but it, I think it's a it's a very complex issue. Yeah. Um, because you've got administrators, you've got parents, you've got teachers, you've got students. Um, but I think the current school culture that we have in this country mm-hmm. has many issues. Yes. But one particular <laughs> to this to this topic is the idea of zero tolerance policies when yeah. it comes to violence, mm-hmm. because you might have a student who lashes out and hits another student. And this can happen, and I've seen it happen as young as kindergarten even. Mm-hmm. And the reason they hit the other student is because they were called gay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or they were called a sissy. And so the zero tolerance policy now punishes the person who was actually the victim of the bullying mm-hmm. and has placed the person who was the bully as the victim. And so we've flipped the script Mm -hmm. where in many cases, a person who is actually the cause, Mm -hmm. the underlying cause of the violence Mm -hmm. can get away with no punishment or very little punishment Mm -hmm. Um, because zero tolerance policies are exactly that. They're zero tolerance. There's, there's no need for an investigation because all they have to ask is who punched who. And Mm -hmm. if, the person who was being bullied was the person who threw the first punch. Mm-hmm. That's the one who's responsible. And the zero tolerance policy means that they're the one who gets suspended or yeah. expelled or what have you. And I wonder if people know that there's zero tolerance policy on like violence and they're being bullied over and over again and they choose not to act out violently. I wonder if like, the mindset behind when they choose to be violent in these cases where there's been school shootings, if it's if if I'm going to if I'm going to break the rules, I might as well do it the worst way possible. Yeah, you know. Yeah, in for um, a penny, in for a pound. Yeah, yeah, because if if I am already going to be suspended, might as well like go all the way. Yeah. So that's so sad. Well, and I think the other thing it does too is it 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 just sort of it forces students to bottle up their feelings yeah. because there's no other way to express that frustration other than violence mm-hmm. because that's the only thing that they're being taught as an alternative. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. if, if, if parents and teachers could come together and find ways to teach all children, not just those ones who are being bullied, but mm-hmm. all children, ways to adequately deal with their feelings and the emotions that are washing over them on a daily basis, mm-hmm. 
we could see a lot of these issues resolved before they resort to violence. But the problem is we bottle things up and we tell them, oh, don't worry about it. They're just jealous of you. Yeah. You know, whatever it is we as parents tell kids mm-hmm. until it gets to the point where they can't handle it anymore yeah. and then they explode. Yeah. And and in the, in the case cases like we've been talking about in these podcasts, mm-hmm. literally they, they explode into yeah. to violence that, that causes harm not just to themselves but to the people around them. Because we haven't been teaching them how to properly handle those feelings which again kind of goes back to the um, adolescent thing which is what this mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. article is about so it goes back to I don't I don't feel like adolescence is properly finished because mm-hmm. not only because of the whole now in this age like people always feel like they're not an adult yet mm-hmm. but like you were kind of talking about last week um, having this like matriculation period where you finally you know reach that transition, mm-hmm. and a part of that I feel like should be <laughs> like learning how to express your feelings in a way that's not immature or not mm-hmm. violent or um, not you know mm-hmm. uncalled for. Yeah, so, but yeah. the problem is they're not seeing that anywhere. Yeah, they're not seeing it at home. They're not seeing, seeing it in the media. They're yeah. not seeing it in school. Mm-hmm. I mean, teachers have such a hard time getting through the material that they have to get through that's, that's tested true. That's true. on it, that they have a very hard time addressing <laughs> anything else. Yeah. So, you hard. know, to use the example of, of the school system where my wife works, mm-hmm. um, they have this whole year-long effort that they do that's about leadership and all these kinds of things. And it's just one more layer that's laid upon the teachers that they really don't have a lot of time for. I can't tell yeah. you the number of times my wife has to leave her classroom to go to a training mm-hmm. um, for this program that the, the school district has layered on top of what she already has to do so that she's now responsible for teaching math, mm-hmm. uh, science, um, and then oh, uh, you know social studies and language arts, but then also leadership. That's crazy. And so you know we're not giving teachers the time and the tools or the compensation to be able to do those kinds yeah. of things, and so it gets it it naturally falls through the cracks. Yeah. So that's where I think we need community-based, you know, yeah. resolutions to mm-hmm. these kinds of things where um, you know community organizations and churches and individuals mm-hmm. from the from the community need to be working with school administrators and teachers and mm-hmm. saying, look, here are the resources we can offer you. We have mm-hmm. these counseling services that are available. Yeah. And, you know, we make our money by counseling adults, and so we're going to set aside X number of hours per week to mm-hmm. counsel students who are really on the edge in your yeah. school. Yeah. You know, those are the kinds of things the community needs to step up and help the schools to do that mm-hmm. um, because as we continue to cut and devalue public education this is only going to get worse and yeah. it's going to get harder and harder on the teachers uh, to to do what is asked mm-hmm. so. yeah for sure I definitely think a lot of the uh, things that we've come to expect teachers to teach mm-hmm. their students should um, come like come from the home mm-hmm. a lot of the time mm-hmm. uh, which reminded me of this uh section in this article that we're still on um where this uh, guy he was routinely uh kind of gay baited i guess Mm -hmm. um and his mother even called him like all these bad names so even if he wasn't getting it enough at school he was Mm -hmm. also getting it at home so Mm -hmm. i think like 
even that, like, reshaping yeah. the way that parents talk to children is another yeah. thing. And that's where I think it becomes a community issue. Because yeah. Because we also put a lot on parents mm-hmm. who are also struggling because so many people have to have two incomes yeah, and maybe sure. even three or four incomes now to survive. That you can't do all that mm-hmm. to keep food on your table and, and medical bills paid and then mm-hmm. be expected to teach all these mm-hmm. extra things, which you you yourself may not have been taught because we're now at actually a second generation of, of families that are structured like this. Yeah. So I think it's incumbent on the community to sort of step forward, and that's where I see the value in programs like 4-H and Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts and, and those kinds of things to kind of bring significant adults into the lives of of teens who are troubled and children who are troubled um, to kind of give them that boost up, that encouragement that they Mm -hmm. need. Um, But we're seeing dropping commitment to those types types of organizations as well because Mm -hmm. people aren't seeing the value in Mm -hmm. it, you know. Um, But I think um, that there obviously is a value to that. And Mm -hmm. uh, I think what people don't realize (laughs) is that the foundations of like childhood and the things that you learn when you're a child that are taught to be inherent in your character um continue into adulthood it's not like you just learn it in adulthood like I the leadership skills that I have now I didn't just start when I went to college it started back when I was like 10 years old and I was in 4-H like so like there I think there needs to be more care towards those kind of community efforts because um I mean, it changes the way that, like, a person structures themselves, Mm -hmm. especially in that very developmental period. Mm -hmm. Um, Also in here, there was a quote in here from the guy who invented the term adolescence, and (coughs) it made me angry. And this kind of leads me into um, a talk about, uh, since a lot of these problems are very complex and very big and very, like, hard to deal with, I personally believe that there should be more... uh, restrictions on like guns and stuff with that last example i was talking about yes he uh he stole guns to commit his mass gun violence but even in that case he was trying to be cool so he was showing it off to his friends but um anyway i think that there needs to be more gun reform um but to lead into that there's this quote from the the celebrated psychologist g stanley hall who invented the term adolescence believing that a non-fighting boy was a non-entity and that it was better even an occasional dent- nose dented by a fist than stagnation, general cynicism, and sensoriness, bodily and psych- psychic cowardness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's better to be violent than to not be violent, yeah. according to the guy who literally invented the term adolescence. Well, was the important thing to remember, too, is that he... Um, he was writing in the the early twentieth yeah, century, and still. yeah. <laughs> but the fact that like we still use his term, yes, and yeah, it's yeah. still that thing that needs to be built upon before yeah. people can become adults, yeah. and it's adolescence that really affects the way that um, people grow into adulthood. Yeah. Because I think people just think once you once you become an adult, you're an adult, and then mm-hmm. everything is perfect, and you're ready to do anything you want. Yeah. Um, but that's not true. Yeah. <laughs> So if you go back to um, Hall and Mm -hmm. others like him, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that time period in American history is when a lot of the legends of the so-called Wild West emerged. Mm -hmm. You know, the Wild West wasn't as wild as we make it out to be, but the 
when when movies become popular and moving pictures become popular, some of the most popular forms of that of that form of entertainment are cowboy movies mm-hmm. of you know rootin' tootin' you know shooting guys on horseback and mm-hmm. these manly men, and we created this image of American manliness that included having. Uh, a gun holstered on your hip at all times mm-hmm. and being able to win the woman of your dreams by showing off your prowess. And mm-hmm. there's this whole movement at that time period in American history when we start moving towards this idea of hyper masculinity. Mm-hmm. So you think about things like, you know, the founding of the YMCA mm-hmm. was part of that movement of what we call masculine Christianity. Um, where there was a sense that Christianity was becoming too feminine and too soft. And so they were building things like YMCAs where young men could go and lift weights and play basketball and and get in fights and swim and do all these things that sort of, you know, allowed them to be masculine, not in a homosexual way, you know, because we're going to swim naked, but we're not gay. You know, that's that's kind of... I've seen... Uh, pictures from the the Boy Scout summer camp I used to work at where the boys would literally go swimming in the nude mm-hmm. and yet it was considered manly and masculine that mm-hmm. you were connecting with the, the elements and all these kind of things. So there's mm-hmm. this whole movement in American history to that because we're so afraid that men are going to become soft and feminine that that's going to harm them. So what we've done is we've built an entire social structure based on misogyny. Mm-hmm. The idea that women are somehow a lesser life form Mm -hmm. than men. And so therefore, for men to truly be men, they have to avoid being like women at all costs. Mm -hmm. This reminds me of my my capstone, Mm -hmm. uh, which for the people who are listening to this and do not know me personally, Mm -hmm. um, I did my senior capstone on masculinity and violence in Macbeth because I'm a literature major. And um, in that, I literally remember there was a line that said something about women being lesser figures and Mm -hmm. that women were seen um, as, like, less than men. And so, like, my my whole capstone is around ambition and how women are allowed to be ambitious and how, like, Macbeth has to play out his gender so much that he has to hide his feelings, which is basically what we're talking about here, (laughs) Um, which is one of the reasons why I was interested in this especially as it just like came to me all this um connection between masculinity and gun violence um so since we are in america and uh since uh we do have this problem where we do see like women as lesser figures and as we talked about um last week there's a lot of connections between masculinity and the gun um as like a phallic symbol or just the connection to like brute um, violence, uh, and also the there's statistics around men using guns for suicide and men using, like, just guns and masculinity are so tightly knit for some reason. Um, but seeing that and knowing that in the United States since, uh, what, there's been a shooting a week since Sandy Hook or something like that yeah. is what we said last week. Yeah. Um, I wanted to look at a country who has not had a shooting a week since mm-hmm. Sandy Hook. Um, so the next article I wanted to look at is talking about um, there were two shootings in Finland, and the reason why I chose to look at this is because it took two shootings rather than where we have had lots of shootings um, to start a conversation around um, gun violence. And granted, we 
we did have a start of a conversation back when um, Columbine happened, but like since then, it doesn't feel like as big of a deal as this one was in 2011. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. I think one of the biggest things for me on this article was that, um, yes, it, it said most of the same things, the other articles. Uh, apparently, a lot of people in Finland were just throwing off the idea of um, genderedness mm-hmm. in their gun violence because they saw that as more of an American thing, mm-hmm. which is interesting in itself. But um, I also just thought there's there's a thing in here saying that, like, my question is, why aren't we doing more? And also, mm-hmm. how can we make the conversation around gun violence a bigger thing Mm -hmm. because in finland it took two shootings that were basically the same um they said in here that the second one was kind of like a copycat of the first Mm -hmm. and it wasn't until after the second one that they started actually caring Mm -hmm. but um when when the second one did happen there was like a call for there was um a call for the minister of the interior to resign for insufficient measures in gun control since the first shooting. Yeah. But like, yet we have, how many shootings did you say there was this year? Uh, well, uh, when we did the last podcast last week, oh we were up God. to 20. I don't know where we are. Okay. Now, so I just thought it was interesting that just the difference between the two cultures. Also, um, I met someone, he was a foreign um, exchange student from Finland who was here last fall. Um, and he was in my poetry class with me, so that's how I met him. And um, in the class, he was talking about how uh, in Finland, men are required to do like a term of military service. So like that's written in here without really any context because it would be assumed by anyone who lived in Finland, like they would know that. Um, and yet there are less shootings there than there are here. There are still shootings and they are still, um, as the people saying here, um, still gendered, mm-hmm. but there's still less of them. So, what do you think? What do you think of that? <laughs> what do you think we need to do here to become? I don't know. We're like Finland. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not sure that it's possible to, for us to become more like Finland, but I think we can become more like we ought to be. <laughs> so, you know, I think there's something to be said about. Um, claiming our history mm-hmm. uh, as a as a country mm-hmm. and and dealing with that that we have not done previously. Mm-hmm. Finland didn't have the same kind of history That's of true. violence in its foundation. I mean there's certainly violence and, and they've been to wars mm-hmm. and those kinds of things. But like a lot of Europe, uh, Finland avoided the um, peculiarities of the slave trade and the violence that that went along with that and mm-hmm. so one of the things that that you see i think oh gosh which of the many documentaries that i've watched <laughs> recently um it might have been 13th yeah but anyway that talked about the the violence that was perpetrated against black people in slavery also had an impact on the white people yeah the, so the families that, that perpetrated the violence against blacks many generations ago, including probably, most likely, my ancestors, 
there's something that builds into your DNA almost, mm-hmm. both as the person who's been victimized and the victimizer mm-hmm. that gets passed on to the next generation. And so there's this sense of to be truly male, to be truly dominant in this country, you have to be white, male, mm-hmm. masculine, powerful, strong. Yeah. And that is something that we have built into our, our culture, our, our cultural DNA, because that's what it took for us to subjugate an entire race of people from mm-hmm. another continent because, you know, we just sort of, that's what we had to do to, to make slavery work. And so what happens then is both sides of that equation create violence as the bedrock upon which we're founded. So I think what we need to do as a culture is to re-examine those narratives that, yeah. we've, that we've used to, to talk about the, our creation as a country and say, you know, let's deal with that violence. Let's deal with, you know, let's have a, a national sort of therapy session where we deal with that violence yeah. and say, what's the effect that it's had on you? What's the effect mm-hmm. it's had on me? And how do, we, how do we deal with that? How mm-hmm. do we get beyond the idea of violence as being redemptive? So mm-hmm. there, there's this this myth that we've created in our culture that violence is redemptive and it, it plays into our religious uh, atmosphere as well mm-hmm. you know cr- American Christianity is rife with this idea that God is a violent God I mean if you go all the way back to the founding of the country and you look at um, uh, the sinners in the hands of an angry God um, you know that that sermon Mm-hmm. sort of sets the tone for American religion, which is that God is an angry God, God demands sacrifice, and therefore, because we are all sinners and are not worthy of, of making that sacrifice ourselves, Jesus had to be the sacrifice. And so it's the violence that saves us, mm-hmm. which really is not the message of the cross. Yeah. <laughs> the message of the cross is of a self-giving God yeah. who actually chooses to take on the violence of humanity mm-hmm. rather than you know, see humanity continue to to consume itself in its own violence. Yeah. So we've just we've got to re-examine the narrative that we've mm-hmm. used to create our country. So I think that's where we're different from Finland. Yeah. Is that they don't have that that history. Mm-hmm. Now, to some extent, that's also to their detriment because they're not as diverse. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in much of Western Europe, you don't see a lot of, you know, dark-skinned people unless mm-hmm. they are refugees or, you know, transplants from another place. Yeah. So America has this weird kind of thing where we we're, we're culturally diverse by accident <laughs> because yeah. we kind of created mm-hmm. that situation. But, um, so I think what we can do is, is to learn from the the methods that they've put in place, but I don't think we can adopt them wholesale because <laughs> yeah. they just won't fit within our context. Yes, yeah. though so. I, that's really interesting because I um, I'm thinking of like my days of history and mm-hmm. how much a lot of my peers have hated taking history classes, mm-hmm. and um, I feel like a lot of the times when we talk about like America's history and the violence that is included in that history, we kind of sweep it under the rug and say, well, well, America's not like that anymore, so we don't need to worry about it. But, like, just so you know, like, World War II happened. Or, like, <laughs> slavery, that happened, too. Um, yeah. But, like, 
Um, as like a person of color, I have often felt like really weird whenever we have conversations around slavery, but like, mm-hmm. uh, it's only for the couple weeks that we talk about slavery and then we move on to something else and then I don't have to worry about it anymore. 28 which days is, in February. I mean, like, but that's not true. Like the, yeah. the, like race relations still go on mm-hmm. and like the idea of like white like you were saying you have to be white you have to be a male you have to be in power um that still holds true regardless of the fact that it's been uh what how long has america been a lot around 240 years <laughs> there you go <laughs> 41 so, 241 years uh, well and i think what comes to mind when i think about the way we can reframe that that story is i think of things like the cultural phenomenon that is Hamilton and the fact that um, Lin-Manuel Miranda specifically chose to write this in a hip-hop format and to cast intentionally non-white actors Mm -hmm. in the roles, Mm -hmm. except for the the role of King George, which is probably the whitest role ever created. (laughs) Um, But there's... There's something powerful in the way that that story gets told because when it's told through the eyes of, of people of color, um, which is what it's doing in, the, in making those casting choices and that musical choice, it completely changes our perspective because there's this sort of, there's this arc that Hamilton goes through in that musical where he begins life as this sort of scrappy, young, tough guy who's got to prove himself and mm-hmm. you sort of almost... You can see him almost as being small and kind of a pipsqueak and needing mm-hmm. to always fight to defend himself to eventually becoming this giant of the Revolutionary War mm-hmm. to then losing his son to violence mm-hmm. and realizing that that was not the, you know, the way yeah. to go. And then and his own life ends in violence. Yeah. And so there's this, there's this sense of if we can begin to tell those, those stories in ways where you know even the Aaron Burr character in that yeah. musical comes to realize that that was not the best choice. Like, immediately. Like, yeah, Right yeah. after the duel's over, there, it's a very good song. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so but, there's this there's this sense that we can, we can tell that story, but we can reframe it in mm-hmm. ways that don't do a disservice to it. I, don't, mm-hmm. I think they get the story right, yeah. but it interprets it in a new way. Yeah. So and you can it, kind of see the violence more viscerally, yes, where, like... Yeah. Um, I think I knew before yeah. Hamilton that, yeah. like, Hamilton was killed by Burr in a duel. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, it was just, again, one of those things that's just, like, brushed aside, like, no yeah. big deal. It happened. Yeah. But, like, when you hear it in that kind of format where um, you can hear more of the violence, you can hear immediately how he's affected by perpetrating that violence, yeah. then we get, like, a deeper understanding. So I think, like, more of that historical like understanding of how bad things were mm-hmm. um kind of like how like i went to the holocaust museum mm-hmm. in um dc and it was like a big deal mm-hmm. <laughs> and like seeing it in person mm-hmm. and seeing all those things that actually were a part of it in person is a lot more it's a lot different than uh the way that i think it's not the teachers mm-hmm. that are at fault when we learn about history, but kind of like the mindset of the students, because I, um, I was mildly interested in history, but like not a lot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I think like creating more of a like focus, um, on history and showing more of the, uh, emotional Mm -hmm. part of history. I think a lot of the times when we look back at history, 
especially our like really violent history, we um, kind of we don't see them as people. We see them as like things that happened. It's just like a story. It's almost like reading a book, yeah, or like reading a fictional book, I should say. Yeah. Um, but not like actually learning the history that we have. Yeah. And so I think that's why we didn't see the same kind of response in this country from all the shootings that yeah. we had that they've had in Finland. Cause it's because it's always been in our DNA. Yeah. To Finland, it was a shock. Yeah. For us, we see that violence <laughs> and we're like, oh, that's just, that's part of who we are. Mm-hmm. It's part of our story. You mm-hmm. know, we are Americans. Mm-hmm. We're violent people. And yeah. that's, we just sort of accepted that wholesale. And the problem with that is that we then end up um, accepting that as the norm. And yeah. again, it all goes back to what we norm in mm-hmm. our society. What are the, what are the ways that we construct yeah. our language about society? And uh, the thing I think I learned from the, the Finnish article is that um, they were there was a quick response like with the government asking for government officials to, to step down and all these kinds of and gun laws and those kind of things mm-hmm. but they still had they still struggled with the conversation about gender uh, even despite you know all of this proactive work that happened after those shootings this whole article talks about how there were still people who were reluctant to point out the fact that all these shooters were Yeah, yeah. And that's, I feel like it starts with like identifying that um, our history and our our history is violent, but also identify or talking about this subject, like the fact that we're doing this podcast anyway is like a step towards that. But until people talk about the fact that men are primarily the people who shoot, Mm -hmm. then we can't really make any change around that. Um, And even (laughs) we're seeing Finnish as like the ideal here mm-hmm. but even they couldn't see that yeah, as well yeah. well um, it's it pervades our our popular culture to no end because i you know i'm a fan of uh real crime shows well, not real crime shows but like procedural crime shows like your ncis's and criminal mm-hmm. minds those kind of things and one thing they always say on those shows is that your serial killers are almost always male mm-hmm. and so it's almost a shock like the other night we were watching one of those shows and the the perpetrator was actually a woman mm-hmm. and there was like this gasp amongst the investigators on the mm-hmm. show almost like mm-hmm. it's a woman and we weren't expecting a woman to do this and that goes back to the 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 example you pointed out last time about the uh, the shooting at the YouTube yeah. offices that that was a woman mm-hmm. and it's so outside of the norm that we don't even talk about it mm-hmm. but yet we accept all the time that men are just violent and yeah. this is this is a normal part of the so, so we, need to, we need to change what we think is the norm. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. If we continue to just see school shooting after school shooting, yeah. 30 in, or wait, 20. was it 20? Yeah. Sorry. Since 20 since, January. since, the, yeah. since January of this year. So what, that's like four months, um, so almost point, five months. 1.25 per week. That's, so. <laughs> that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so um, when we start... Like, I think this started with the Parkland shooting, which, mm-hmm. again, was, like, the the beginning of this project for me. Um, but, like, with those kids um, coming out and saying, like, this is not normal and it will not be normal anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we all, as Americans, need to, like, start reframing our mindset towards that this is not the normal or else it's going to keep happening. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like a lot of times people don't take it seriously until it's their own child and... Yeah. 
we shouldn't wait that long. Yeah. <laughs> like, nobody... I feel like any child that dies is a child that shouldn't die. So, um... But even the response yeah. to the Parkland shooting has been interesting because yeah. the students who have led the way have been threatened with violence. Yeah. Which seems like the most counterintuitive thing in the world, yeah. that someone who's standing up against violence... Um, would be threatened with further violence to themselves and the people that they love mm-hmm. because there's someone who feels so threatened by their standing against that violence that it's like a vicious circle, like a catch-22. <laughs> it's a vicious circle. That, um, but if you look at the young people who've stood up, mm-hmm. they are, um, well, to, to some extent, they're diverse. Mm-hmm. There's some question about the, yeah. the widest range of diversity. Yeah. There's not a lot of students of color, but yeah. you think of like Emma Gonzalez, yeah. uh, David Hogg, Delaney um, Tanner, I think is her last name. Anyway, these are, when you look at them, just from the outside, they're not the typical kinds of students who would stand up and, and do this kind of speaking. You know, they're, they're mm-hmm. students who have sort of come from the the edge and said, look, we're tired of this. And so I think we're beginning to see a shift in the narrative now because it, it is these students who are being affected directly who are, who are leading the way. Yeah. Um, I think one of the best things that parents and educators could do would be to support those students. Yeah. Um, you know, my daughter, I think I mentioned this in the last podcast, mm-hmm. my daughter walked out mm-hmm. on March 14th. Mm-hmm. She was one of two students at her school. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I think she was one of only two students at her school, even though there were lots of students who were talking about it because she was telling me about them mm-hmm. and I was seeing them on her Facebook page. The reason I think she was one of only two students, though, is because the administration put out this letter ahead of time that said anyone who walks out of class is automatically going to get a, a detention. And so we had a conversation as a family. What does that mean for for you? What does Mm -hmm. that mean? Are you willing to take that consequence? And yes, you know, if you're doing civil disobedience, you have to be willing to take the consequence. But there was this sort of um, backlash from administrators. They didn't want to support the students because Mm -hmm. they thought that that was too political mm. for the school systems to get involved. But if they're in. not if they're not political in schools, where are they ever going to learn to be political? Yeah. Is my thing is yeah. because if if school is supposed to help develop um, good citizens mm-hmm. for the world, if that's what public education is supposed to be about, then um, if not in schools then where? Yeah. You know. Well, it depends on your definition of a good citizen. That's true. So if your definition of a good citizen is one who never speaks up and who uh-huh. always accepts what authority tells them, then mm-hmm. the, the school's doing a great job. Um, if your definition of a good citizen is one who's engaged and who questions authority and who goes out and you know agitates and, mm-hmm. and does community organizing, then the school wants to be as far away from that as possible because that's seen as being political yeah. versus you know pledging allegiance mm-hmm. and and always following the party line reminds me of uh, some dystopian novels that i've read yeah i think that's why dystopian, <laughs> dystopian young adult fiction is so popular now because yeah. i think young people are so disaffected by mm-hmm. what they see in the world that mm-hmm. to them it seems normal that the yeah. world is going to end at some point yeah. and everything's going to be this desolate landscape yeah. And who are the people who save the day in those books? It's always teens. Yeah. It's always people who are 18 or younger. Yeah. And the bad guys are always the adults. And mm-hmm. I think that's that's on purpose. And yeah. I don't have a problem with that mm-hmm. because I think there's something to be said about challenging the fact that there's a generation of people who have sort of 
been asleep at the switch mm-hmm. and haven't done what it need what needs to be done to stop the violence that's occurring in our streets and mm-hmm. in our schools and in our homes. Mm-hmm. And so the young people are now, you know, we've got a somebody said the other day, we've got a generation of young people who are raised on Harry Potter <laughs> and the Hunger Games. Uh-huh. And they're going to stand up because yeah. what happens in those books? The kids stand up and they change society. Yeah. So I think I think a large portion of changing the narrative lies in the generation of my daughter and younger who mm-hmm. are going to sort of rise up and, mm-hmm. and say, we're not going to take it anymore. Now, yeah. will that last long enough for the change to actually happen? I don't know. Because mm-hmm. if you look at the protests of the 60s, yeah. the people who were protesting in the 60s became the yuppies of the 80s yeah. and the business executives and you know yeah. they started wearing three-piece suits and all those yeah. kinds of things. So if it can last long enough, if they can keep their idealism long enough... Yeah. Um, then I think they can make a, a real positive change. Mm-hmm. But I, I doubt that that could happen long term mm-hmm. if we have the same kind of system that we currently yeah. have. Mm-hmm. You know? So I think those young people need to claim their voice as voters mm-hmm. and they need to get out and they need to get out in record numbers because yeah. the the generation of people who are now the young voters, so like you know Gen X, Gen Y, uh, Gen Z, whatever it is they're calling it, you know, all those kind of things, <laughs> The, the people who are the younger generations form a, a much bigger block mm-hmm. than the generations that come before us. Mm-hmm. And so I even include myself in that. I think anybody 40 and, and younger, mm-hmm. if we take all the people who can vote in that block, mm-hmm. we could outvote the people who are in power right now. But mm-hmm. it takes organization and it takes getting behind something or someone or some mm-hmm. movement. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's going to take is that sort of ground swell of people and it has to happen before the dystopian future takes <laughs> takes over because yeah. in reality if that happens we're much less likely to be pulled out of that mm-hmm. by teens mm-hmm. than hunger games and harry potter would have us <laughs> have us believe yeah. so i think then that a lot of the work to I mean, the work isn't going to just happen. Yeah. Like, it, it's not just going to be that the next generation rides up and then mm-hmm. suddenly everything's going to change. But I think a lot of it... Um, and the Parkland shooting kids really started that. But mm-hmm. I think a lot of it is we need to continue that work, mm-hmm. not only in my generation, but also in, like, the the people who are close. Like you said, like, 40 and younger or whatever. Um, since we're the next... I mean... This sounds really grim. Old people are dying out, and so we're the next experience group of people. So we need to like continue to demand change, and then maybe if we continue to demand change, we can start a little bit of change, and then it'll keep going. Yeah. Um, but I can't just like happen with the next generation, and it can't yeah. just happen with my generation. But it needs to happen with, uh, like the the people who care. They need yeah. to start caring louder, I guess. Yeah. Well, um, I think. Part of that is getting into the trenches and doing the hard day-to-day work. Mm-hmm. It's great to have rallies. It's great to do civil disobedience. It's great to do these kind of symbolic actions like walkouts and those kind of things. Yeah. But unless you also commit to the day-to-day organizing and campaigning for the candidates that you think are are important and that have good ideas and throwing your, your time and your energy and whatever money you have to spare behind those kinds of efforts, yeah. nothing's going to change. Yeah. So I think this these young people who are standing up, 
I would encourage them to run for school board, yeah. run for city council, yeah. run for the local offices where you actually have much more effect on people's daily lives than Congress. Yeah. Congress has a, you know, they have a big effect in, mm-hmm. in the bigger picture, but if you really want to have an impact on your community and the daily lives of your peers, run for city council and run for school board mm-hmm. and, you know, run for the... the uh, water board or whatever, you know, yeah. those are the things that are going to affect. That's where the decisions are made that affect mm-hmm. you day to day. And mm-hmm. I can guarantee you that the other side, the, who are highly organized and highly committed to getting pro-gun and pro, you know, um, whatever, pro-weapon folks, mm-hmm. they are doing that exact thing right now, getting mm-hmm. people on school boards mm-hmm. and getting them into to local government. Mm-hmm. So young people really need to get involved in that as well. Um, and make their voices heard. Mm-hmm. And also, I said people 40 and below, and I'm 41, so I'm just, <laughs> I didn't include myself in that. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think we should move on to yep. uh, kind of the recommendations that were given by the UN in this. Uh, there's this whole booklet, it's uh, called Missing Pieces. It was really hard for me to find. Um, but this section, this theme number four is women, men, and gun violence. And so, um, when looking at their recommendations around uh, kind of changing this gun violence issue, they have like a whole section on like why it's an issue, but we've already talked about that. So let's just move on to mm-hmm. what their recommendations are. And I'll just read them and then we can talk about the ones that we think are are the most important. Sure. Okay, so the first one is fully meet existing international norms relating to gender and gun violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second one is DDR programmers and planners should give particular attention to Article 13 of Security Council Resolution 1325, um, which is about uh, disarmament and demobilization. <laughs> it, is the uh, UN, so. it is the UN, so that makes sense. Uh, direct three is direct attention to young men as a group particularly vulnerable to gun violence. Four is restrict the acquisition of guns and ammunition by those who commit intimate partner or family violence. Five is train law enforcement officials to better understand the small arms issues related to the prevention of gender-based violence. Six is include the perspectives of men and women in the development of policies to prevent gun violence. And seven is to consolidate what is already known, identify gaps, and generate more information. So those are the things that the UN has mm-hmm. suggested as ways to uh, address this issue that has come up in um, gun violence. And I think this addresses a different, a lot of different types of gender um, issues, but these are the, uh, the resolutions that they suggest. And I think the ones that stick out to me most are um, the fully meeting the norms mm-hmm. and directing attention to young men as people who are particularly vulnerable, as well as including the perspectives of both men and women, which mm-hmm. I kind of <laughs> pointed that out more in the way that I inflected that sentence. But um, <laughs> I think it's important to not only have the voices of men, but sometimes if they are willing to listen, the voices of women can be really important. And I think the it's also important to listen and mm-hmm. have a group that is willing to listen to the voices of women mm-hmm. and not see it as like uh, kind of that, like putting 
It shouldn't be like one person is, is on top and one is on the bottom. It should be like they're equals mm-hmm. come to the table in that way. Yeah. So what, what do well, you think of these resolutions? I think number one, fully meeting existing international norms relating mm-hmm. to gender and gun violence is a great place to start because mm-hmm. the one thing that I hear from people on the other side of this issue, and I'll say that I'm a gun control advocate. Mm-hmm. I'll lay my cards on the table right there. Uh, anybody who knows me would know that already. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, the one thing I hear from people who are on the other side of this argument is, well, if we would just enforce the laws we currently have, Mm -hmm. we wouldn't have this problem. Mm -hmm. Sure, let's start with that then. You recognize there's a problem, so do I. Mm -hmm. I recognize that we're still, we're also not, you know, enforcing the laws that are currently in place. Mm -hmm. So let's start with that. And if there's still a gun violence problem, then let's move on. And I can guarantee you, in this country at least, Mm -hmm. that's going to be the case. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. uh, I remember reading in the article about Finland, uh, Mm-hmm. But I'm, this is obviously true in America. Mm-hmm. People who commit acts of gun violence do still buy their guns legally. Mm-hmm. So it's, yes, we need to enforce the laws as they are now, but also recognizing that it's not, that's just not going to fix things. Yeah. But yeah. anyway, to go on, yeah. sorry. And so I think I think that was a good one to, for them to start with. Mm-hmm. I think you pointed out number three, direct attention to young men as a group particularly vulnerable to gun violence. Mm-hmm. Um, I like their their phrasing there because mm-hmm. the particularly vulnerable to gun violence means mm-hmm. that men young men can be both victims and mm-hmm. perpetrators of mm-hmm. the violence and so I think we need to focus this issue around young men mm-hmm. I know that there are probably young women out there who, mm-hmm. who are you know in danger and vulnerable to these kinds of things as well mm-hmm. but I think this is a time when we really need to identify who are the people committing most of these crimes? Young men. Okay, let's look at them. <laughs> yes. you know, it just makes sense. Yeah. Statistically speaking, you're going to have the biggest impact if you deal with the group that has the most problems with this. So mm-hmm. doing that is a great thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one that you said was what? Number In- six. Include perspectives of men and women. I mean, that is a no-brainer as far as yeah. I'm concerned. I mean, yeah. anybody who's listening to this podcast is already going to agree with that. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I, I think so. Uh, one of the things that I've learned a lot while being in college is Mm -hmm. that um, a diverse conversation is a better conversation Mm -hmm. um, because you get perspectives that you didn't see yourself. If if I'm just going to have a conversation with myself, that's not going to be helpful and Mm -hmm. it's not going to um, lead to any change. But having the perspectives of both men and women, which I think could be done on multiple policies, not just guns, uh, but everything else Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um then you get a you get better solutions you get uh more understanding Mm -hmm. you get a wider perspective i think uh that's diversity is really important and i think it's something that is often overlooked Mm -hmm. um in policy making yeah yeah I think the other one that I would lift up was is number four mm-hmm. about res- restricting acquisition of guns mm-hmm. by those who commit intimate partner or family violence. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that's a crucial step in this yeah. process. I think that's going to be one of the harder ones for us as a nation because mm-hmm. we sort of have this feeling that everybody has the right. I mean, in 2006, the Supreme Court essentially said that everyone has the right to own a gun. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, you know, a constitutional right as defined by the Supreme Court of the United States at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this idea of does everybody really have that right, mm-hmm. or is there some? Is, are there certain things that you can do mm-hmm. that remove that ability to have 
for you to have that right. So everybody in this country also has the right to vote. Mm-hmm. But we then say, but if you've been convicted of a felony, you no longer have that right. Yeah. So, you know, like there, there, there are exceptions. Yeah, there, there, are, there is a precedent for yeah. taking away a person's right because of their actions. Mm-hmm. And so if a person has truly committed violence against family members or, mm-hmm. or a spouse or a domestic partner, those are the kinds of people that we need to say, here's where we start restricting mm-hmm. gun access. And it's, if people are so concerned about people not being able to have guns, maybe <clears throat> even if there's like a waiting period, I don't remember what I was mm-hmm. listening to or what I had read or what it was, but there was something about like um, a proposed action for uh, like talking <clears throat> about like bump stocks and mm-hmm. um AR-15s and stuff like that, but instead of immediately, if you want an AR-15, you can go into a store and get it, mm-hmm. um, creating like a waiting period. I think mm-hmm. it was like a three-day waiting period that so was for, proposed. For high-powered uh, and high-capacity mag- yeah. high magazines. Like having a waiting period, like you can't just go in and buy it, which would then create a period of like, if you were mm-hmm. thinking about committing something crazy, then you there's have, a there's a cooling down period. But I think... Even if you want to have this, I I agree that there should be restrictions on people who, um, but who, for those who may not agree with that, um, then maybe after, if they want to get a gun, then they have to go through some sort of training to make sure that they're okay enough to handle that, if that makes sense. It makes sense. It's a, I, lot, it's a lot more generous than I'd be willing to do, but yeah. that's... I I'm, I'm just trying to propose something in case there's someone who's like, yeah. no, we can't take the guns away. Then, yeah. fine, then let's do again, at least some sort of... Yeah, again, which, putting my cards on the table, yeah. I could care less about the feelings <laughs> of those people. Oh, I, but I think the other one, too, the final one, consolidating what is already known, identifying gaps and generating mm-hmm. more information. The one thing we have... Tons of information on, and yet at the same time, very little information on is gun violence. Mm-hmm. Because in this country, particularly, we don't fund it. It's mm-hmm. not funded by the by public funding in mm-hmm. any way because of, of legal restrictions at, at the congressional level. It's not something that if a person uh, is in this field, they're not going to want to go into the, the research mm-hmm. of, of gun violence. violence because you're not going to get funding from foundations for it. You're not going to get grants for mm-hmm. it. It's something that we need to commit to as a public safety and public health issue. I think mm-hmm. it's a public health issue. Yeah. The gun violence is, is akin to an epidemic. Yeah. And if you had as many children dying from a, a viral epidemic as we have had it dying, yeah, <laughs> as we have had die from gun violence, we would have we would have been looking at this a lot, lot sooner. And yeah. so because it's tied to guns is we sort of shy away from that and so mm-hmm. um yeah i think that uh we need to identify the gaps in our in our knowledge yeah. and our information and, and and the gaps in the things that we're willing to admit so yes. kind of like yeah. going back to admitting that we have a violent past mm-hmm. admitting that we have an issue of gender that we need to talk about um and then just finding the other gaps that we don't we don't even know that we have yeah. but we do have yeah. um so and that, yeah. going back to my my image of a national therapy session that's exactly what a therapist would have us do mm-hmm. is to say um let's name the problem mm-hmm. and once we've named the problem then we can deal with it mm-hmm. but i think we as a country have not been able to name the problem because we have people on one end who are saying it's just about guns mm-hmm. people on the other end who are saying it's just about 
violence in the media or video games or whatever. Mm-hmm. And no one is willing to look at the entire spectrum, including gender, mm-hmm. um, but I think primarily gender, of why these things are happening and why mm-hmm. they're being committed by young white men in particular. So mm-hmm. race, gender, you know, the, ac- the accessibility to guns, mm-hmm. you know, psychology, all these things go into it. But we focus on the things that are most near and dear to our hearts, mm-hmm. and we tend to ignore the, the other information. Mm-hmm. So, I, and that also, I feel like, not only is that identifying the gaps and generating more information, but it also is including the perspectives of men and women yes. and just people who are different than you. So, mm-hmm. being able to have a conversation with someone who may not agree with you on um, gun policies, which I know, like, we are pretty much on the same page on yeah. um uh, gun reform and stuff like that, but there, I guess there needs to be more conversation with those who are not on the same page. And maybe this podcast will in- spark conversations and allow people to feel more comfortable talking about it. Um, because, like I said, like diverse conversations lead to more change. And yeah. I think everybody can agree that we don't want children to die. Yeah. And so um, I think. Just those conversations need to happen, and we need to identify those and um, we need gaps to have that we those, talking about. We need to have those conversations in the context of established relationships. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we start off by establishing a relationship mm-hmm. with someone, and then we can have these kind of difficult yeah. conversations. The problem with our society today, I think, is that we... We think we can have this conversation without also committing to the relationship. Yeah. So I can throw something up on Twitter and just yell at the world <laughs> and and I can be right and everybody else is wrong but mm-hmm. when when you're face to face with someone and in a relationship with that person mm-hmm. it's much more difficult to just sort of say well I'm right you're wrong to hell with you mm-hmm. you know my way is the best way yeah and uh, you know I can think of, of examples of students that I know here on campus who are very much on the other side of the fence when it comes to gun control mm-hmm. um, who I can have very intelligent and and you know loving conversations similar to the kind of conversations we've had over these the course of these podcasts mm-hmm. but we totally disagree yeah and i think that comes because of the relationship that's built up yeah. and not just because there's some magic in this conversation it's no. just that you know you and I have known each other for a while we've had mm-hmm. regular meetings mm-hmm. in the same way the people that I I just referenced I've had regular meetings with them and I get I've gotten to know them we've mm-hmm. laughed together we've had meals together mm-hmm. that's what it's going to take I think to, to bring people to the table mm-hmm. is to reignite a sense of relationship and yeah. ownership of our community and our country mm-hmm. instead of of everyone blaming the other side yeah. for all of our problems if we then if we begin to like find ways to, to reach across and I'm not talking about a you know a, a sappy sitting around the campfire singing songs kind mm-hmm. of kind of thing I'm talking about real deep relationships that are hard to build and maintain yeah. mm-hmm. so basically what we're saying is there is no real quick solution to any of this even if we if we were gonna say gun reform was the answer like mm-hmm. there's no quick solution to um, gun reform either as so with <laughs> as with most things so i guess what we're saying with this podcast is we need to start doing the hard work if we're going to see changed and it's not gonna i mean it's hard work so mm-hmm. it's not gonna be easy and it's not gonna be quick but it's something that um needs to start and it should start soon in my own opinion mm-hmm. um so yeah well that's about it that's all i all have right. and 
Um, yeah, I hope you guys are able to have conversations with those who are different and uh, just feel comfortable talking about those kind of tough issues, but also building those relationships that lead to tough talk. Yeah. So that's it. Sounds good. Have a great day.